After Jesus had told the parable of the ten talents, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead, and there you will find tied up a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it to me. But if anyone should ask you, Why are you untying the colt? Just say to them, The Lord needs it. So the two that were chosen went on ahead and found it just as Jesus had said. As they were untying it, the owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. So they brought the colt to Jesus. And after they had placed their cloaks on it, they set Jesus upon it. And as he rode along, the people put their cloaks on the road in front of him. And as he approached the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples praised God, joyfully and in a loud voice, warning, in a loud voice, for all the deeds of power they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Now the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. And Jesus said, I tell you, if these are silent, even the stones will shout out. Then Jesus came near to Jerusalem and he could see it. And he wept over it. He said, if you, even you, had recognized on this day what makes for peace. But now these things are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come when your enemies will build ramparts around you. They will surround you. They will hem you in from every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave within you one stone upon another, for you failed to recognize the, the time of the visitation of your God. Then Jesus went into the temple and he started to throw out those people who were selling things there. He said, it is written, my house is a house of prayer. You have made it a den of robbers. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, I am so excited to be here with you guys today. My name is Matt Hotho. I am the director of adult discipleship. I get people connected into small groups and all that kind of stuff at the church. Um, but first, kind of before I hop into the sermon, a couple of things I just want to say. We've got, uh, we're in the sixth and final part of a six-week sermon series called Crossroads. We've been doing it for the whole season of Lent. If you're not a Christian and you've never heard of the word Lent, you're like, is that when I give somebody something and they gave it back? No, that's Lent. Lent is a time when 
Um, actually, that may be like a weird past tense of Lent. Anyways, Lent is a time uh, of 40 days leading up to Easter. Um, they kind of mirror the 40 days of temptation when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. Uh, and we, as Christians, kind of take that time as a time to reflect and think about our lives and letting go as we're leading up to the time of Easter. So we're in the final part of the season of Lent. And so next week is Easter. And like Sally said, it's going to be a big event. A lot of people are going to be here. But here's the one thing I want to tell you. If you've got a friend that you've been like, I think they need to come to church. Like, I think they might need to come to church. Things aren't going well in their life. They have questions or that kind of thing. Next week is the perfect week to invite them. And here's why. Because many Christians or many people are just creasters. Christmas and Easter. And next week is Easter. So they will be waiting for your invitation. Trust me. Don't be nervous about this. They are waiting for somebody to invite them to church. So invite them to one of our services. I guarantee you it will be an amazing experience because resurrection is amazing. And it's a great thing for people to hear about. So that's kind of that being said. Now to formally start the sermon. Greetings. Glad you all are here. Um, I want to welcome anybody who's listening on our podcast. We have a podcast on iTunes and anybody who is uh, listening on our YouTube channel as well. You can go to YouTube and watch these services over again. So welcome all you guys in the nether worlds of uh, the internet. Welcome to the sermon as well. So uh, like Peter was saying, he was telling the story of Jesus coming into Jerusalem at the start of uh, at the start of his Jerusalem kind of ministry. And so I've been to Jerusalem. I've actually been kind of blessed to have the opportunity to go there once. And uh, I've got some pictures from it. And so I want to kind of illustrate that experience for you so that you might be able to understand kind of what Jesus might have seen um, and what that journey might have looked like for him. So Nick, if you could throw up the first picture. This is a view of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. So when it says, you know, that Jesus was on the Mount of Olives and said, get, you know, go into the city and get two colts. And then he rode down the Mount of Olives. He would have rode down the Mount of Olives down there into that valley. And you see that golden dome there. That's the Dome of the Rock. That's where that's a, now a Muslim mosque. But um, in the past, it probably is almost right where the temple would have been, maybe a little bit to the right of it. OK, he would have rode down and go ahead to the next one, Nick. And this is the view from down within the Hinnom Valley. It's right at the base of the Mount of Olives. And you can see the walls of the city and those gates right over there. Go ahead, Nick, are the golden gates. And those are the gates that Jesus would have ridden through when he rode into the city. So he would have come straight down the Mount of Olives, straight through those gates, and he would have come in. And then if you look at this model of ancient Jerusalem, one more, those gates right there at the bottom are the golden gates, and he would have come right up into the temple. So it kind of makes sense when the story says, okay, he got on a colt and he rode down through the valley and into the temple area. And then when it says, and then he wept over the city and started throwing things around in the temple, it makes sense. He would have been right in the temple. Okay, so he's in the temple, he's throwing things around, and then the story picks up right there in verse 47. And this is what it says. Then he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling things there. He said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the leaders of the people kept looking for ways to kill him, but they did not find anything they could do. For the people were spellbound by what they heard. So we've got a tension kind of starting in this story. We've got this, this teacher, Jesus, and, and, and he's, he's teaching things, and people are like blown away. They've never heard anything like this before. And we're going to talk about this in a second. And then there are these other characters, these three groups of people who are setting out to kill Jesus. Now today, we're going to travel all the way from this story, from the Palm Sunday story, 
all the way to the passion, which means we've got to get to the cross. So I hope you guys don't have lunch plans. We're going to be going until about 1.15. Uh, the caterers will be here shortly. Um, no, I, I'm going to try and run us through this like a quick kind of vignette. Um, but I hope you get this picture of Jesus walks in there, starts throwing things around, throwing tables over where people would have been selling birds, livestock, all the things you need to make sacrifices work. He's throwing those all um, throwing those all off kind of, you know, throwing that whole system off. Okay. And it says that he just kept doing this. Luke tells us a couple of chapters later, um, every day he was teaching in the temple. So after he cleared the temple every day, he was teaching in there. And then at night he would go out, go back up the mountain and spend the night on the Mount of Olives as it was called. And all the people would get up early in the morning to listen to him in the temple. All the people. Can you picture that? I mean, like, so basically what we think of as Palm Sunday, kind of like a rah, rah, he came in. Everybody's so excited. Like that was going on every day for weeks. You can understand now why this might've been a problem for the establishment, right? If you have a job in the temple, it's like you're trying to come to your job. And it's not that there's protesters. It's that there's a guy there who fundamentally doesn't actually agree with what you're doing and is saying, I got a better way and is selling a different product and people are liking it. It's a bit of a concern. People are kind of worried. Jesus was doing something entirely new there. And so you wonder maybe, you know, how do we get to the cross? How, how do we get to the point where somebody could actually, you know, sac- uh, I want to kill this rabbi. What is this rabbi doing that's so bad? So I want to explore that for a second. What is Jesus doing in the temple that's so bad? And so I want to talk about this thing called the temple cycle or maybe the the temple model, I don't really like that idea. I kind of, it's, it's almost like an altar vortex, but I felt like that was too much Star Trek Next Generation. But there's this sense, there is this sense where if you're in a sacrificial system where, you know, it started out kind of where like, okay, well, you know, I want to be okay with God, so I'll bring, you know, a goat. Okay, like some people in, in other cultures, not so much a Jewish culture, in the Jewish culture, they still did it, you know, when they sinned, when they did something wrong. So I sinned, I'm going to bring a goat, I kill the goat, my sins are forgiven by a priest and I'm good to go. But next week, what happens when I sin again? I have to bring another goat. I have to bring another goat. And in some cultures that weren't Jewish, this was even more uh, protracted because it would be like, okay, there's a famine, right? There's a famine. And, oh, well, I brought a goat. Well, the famine's still happening. So obviously this God is still angry at me. What, what do I bring next? Well, I'll bring two goats. Okay? Still a famine. Well, I've, I've got a... I, got my household like does he want all my grain does he want my child like you know what what will sacrifice this temple vortex so you see how it's this this intense gravitational pull this black hole of of ritualism that kind of pulls you in and the and the jewish temple in some way had kind of become that not so much in this dark sort of child sacrifice that wasn't going on but more of a if i sin i have to sacrifice well i sinned again okay i have to sacrifice well did i i think that was a sin I think in one school I thought that's a sin. Okay, yep, all right, got to sacrifice again. And so these people, these money changers, had made a living out of this. It had become a system where you could go there and you could give 20 shekels and get a pigeon because you could do sacrifices with pigeons. They didn't always have to be goats or bulls. That would be a lot of animal. Um, you could also give wafers and that kind of stuff, but it cost you something. And it was the system that kind of held people um, down in a lot of ways. It kind of, it was controlling. It was, it was a problem. And Jesus wanted to do something entirely new. So in Luke, he teaches at the temple for about two chapters. 
And then what we just read about, you know, each day he was teaching there and then the people would come and listen to him. Luke is using that as a transition. And now he's going to tell us about another time, this time of Passover. It's this day where he says to his disciples, hey, one of you, go find me a room. Go find me a room and we're going to have a meal together. And we're going to go have a meal in the city. And so they go have the meal and they're sitting at the table together. And they're having this meal, a Passover meal. All good Jewish boys and girls would have known what a Passover meal was. So these boys are sitting around the table going, okay, a Passover. Cool. That's about Moses when he led us out of Egypt. I know what's going on here. And then Jesus breaks the bread. And they go, oh, that, that's cool. Yeah, I know what that's like. And then he goes, and this is my body. And they go, what? No, 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 no. This is Moses taking us out of Egypt. And this is a meal of remembrance about how we didn't have time to bake our bread. And so there's unleavened bread. And God then you know, provided bread and manna for us as we were in the desert. That's all that symbolizes. Are you telling me that you're Moses? And he's like, no, 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 no. But this is the blood of a new covenant. Check out this. Check out what he says here. And we say this every week when we do communion, by the way. And he did the same with the cup after supper, saying this cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. Wait a second. Time out. The Passover, that blood was a lamb that was slaughtered to put on the doorpost to keep, um, you know, to not have our firstborn children killed when the angel of death came by. You're telling me that now there's a new covenant and it's in your blood? And he's going, yeah. Jesus was doing something entirely, entirely new. And it would cost him dearly. Because this temple cycle and the people who maintained it and the people who, who weren't just Jews, by the way, the Jews, if, if you ever heard that the Jews killed Jesus, no, not really. Like that's not helpful for interfaith dialogue. It's more of the... The, uh, the Romans, it's probably more helpful to think that the Romans killed Jesus. And everything that he was doing on the temple was really disturbing the peace. It was disturbing the peace to the point where the Roman people couldn't actually maintain order in the city. And so when you can't maintain order in a city, well, you're going to go take care of the person who's disturbing the order. In that case, it would have been Jesus. And so if you may or may not know the story, one of Jesus' disciples, Judas, who is intimate, who, who intimately knows Jesus, knows this routine of going to the temple, going to the Mount of Olives to pray, going to the temple, going to the Mount of Olives to pray, comes to one of the chief priests and says, hey, I can you know, turn this guy into you. Just give me a little bit of money. I know where he prays at night. I'll lead him there, show him to you. You can take him in the cover of darkness. Nobody will have to know. And if you know the story, that's what he does. He betrays Jesus, hands him over to the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people. And then they take him into the courts. Uh, he's tortured. He is beaten. He's mocked. Uh, he's taken before the people of the city and they're asked, you know, do you want to crucify Jesus or free a criminal? Do you, you can free either Jesus or this other criminal. And they go, oh, well, we'll free this other criminal. Let's crucify Jesus. And the people, not the Jews, the people say, let's crucify Jesus. So it's kind of this corporate sin and they decide to crucify Jesus. And then he's led to his death. And I'm going to invite Sarah to come up and share that part of scripture. From the book of Luke, from the book of Luke, chapter 23, verses 32 through 43. Two others also, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that was called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, 
one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing, and the people stood by watching. But the leaders scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Messiah of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, saying, Are you not the Son of God? Save yourself. There was an inscription, This is the King of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanged there kept deriding him, saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Then Jesus said, Truly I tell you, tonight you will be with me in paradise. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And so now we come to the Passion. We find Jesus on a cross, two criminals right next to him. And not just the criminals, but the people at the foot of the cross. Almost nobody is blameless in this scene. Everybody is mocking or deriding or making fun of Jesus in this moment. But they're all making fun of him with almost the same temptation. Save yourself. Obviously, if you were the son of God, wouldn't you save yourself? Sounds so simple. And it sounds almost like what the devil said to Jesus in the fourth chapter of Luke from our first week here in, uh, in the series. If you remember, he's tempting Jesus and he tempts him with bread and then he tempts him with power. And then he says to him, Jesus, he takes him up to the highest part of the temple, the pinnacle. Jesus, throw yourself from, this te- from the top of this temple and then save yourself. Because won't God send angels up to protect you before you fall? Like an airbag of angels to catch you? Save yourself. That's the temptation that's put before Christ. Save yourself. And we know the story. We know the story. We know, you know that that's not what happens. But there's the temptation that's put before Christ. And then you have these two criminals on both sides of Jesus. And in all the Gospels, these two criminals are mentioned. These two criminals are mentioned in each Gospel. But Luke is the only one, for some reason, that gives us a view into what these two criminals are saying. That there's a discussion that happens that one speaks to him deridingly or abusively or mockingly and says, save yourself and us. Um, you know, if, are you not the son of God? But the other one says, don't you know? We are under the same punishment. Whatever that is, we don't know what their sin was. But clearly they had done something wrong. Save yourself. 
I'm, I'm sorry. Don't you know we're under the same punishment? But this man has done nothing. And then Jesus to that one says, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. And so we find ourselves here looking at these two criminals between the crossroads of blindness and truth. Something that's helpful when thinking about the crossroads of blindness and truth is the 16th or 17th century theologian John Calvin. Calvin um, gave birth to a a system of theology that probably is loosely related to him in some ways called Calvinism. Um, Some of us may not like Calvinism. Some of us who are Methodists are not Calvinists by our very nature of being Methodists, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with the system of thought per se, um, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about it because I think it it's, it's something that is insipid, it's, um, insipid within us. It can sometimes get deep within our bones and can lead us to a blindness of some kind. So this is what Calvin used to say. He used the metaphor of spectacles. I can't see any of you right now, by the way, so make faces <laughs> at me, do whatever you want, I don't care. This is really how I should preach from now on, by the way, because there's no stage fright. I can't see any of you. Um, so Calvin talked about spectacles. And this is what he said. He said, Bible, the scriptures, are like spectacles. Without them, you're blind. You're walking around in a murky, blurry kind of darkness. You don't really know yourself, and you certainly don't know the world beyond you. But when you put on the spectacles of Scripture, all of a sudden, you see very clearly the world around you and who you are, your own sin, depravity. And this is where Calvin got a little off. He started then getting really focused on your sin and your depravity and how um, we are just really awful, awful sinners. And I think that he lost a little bit of of the the boat in that, you know, and it kind of got really defeatist. But I think that there's this sense in which when we we are Christians and we kind of understand that we see the people, the, the world out there and ourselves a little bit different, at least we should. But I think sometimes that temple cycle works its way into our lives. And we start feeling like we're not good enough. We're not doing enough. We have to give more. And that temple cycle kind of is a voice in the back of our head saying we're not good enough. So um, Rob Bell tells this story in one of his videos about this guy. Okay, this guy was uh, born in Africa, born to a barren woman. And in his tribe, if a woman who was barren had a son, the son who opened her womb would obviously must have to be a, a special uh, son of some kind, so he was made a priest in the village. And his job as the priest was to offer the sacrifices. Now, they did not have a lot, um, but he would go around and scrounge up whatever he could find to do the sacrifices. So, you know, one day it would be a goat, one day it would be a chicken, one day, you know, it would be uh, some bread or some barley or some wheat, something like that. Well, one day a missionary came to him, and this is how he says it. He says, you know, this man came to me and said, you don't have to do this anymore. And I argued with him. And I argued with him. And then he went away. And then he came back. And he said, no, no, no. You don't have to do this anymore. You don't have to do these sacrifices anymore. And I argued with him. And I argued with him. And then he came back and he told me about this man, Jesus, and how because of his sacrifice, I don't have to do sacrifices. And I I still argued with him. And then one time he came back and I decided, you know what? I'm just going to see how this works out. And so I started trusting in this Jesus. And I stopped doing the sacrifices. And Rob asked him, well, well, what happened? And the guy goes, there were goats and chickens. (laughs) And the guy says, 
you know the moral of the story, right? And Rob goes, yes, for this one time, I think I know the moral of the story. And the guy says, Jesus saves the goats and the chickens. <laughs> but I think that's true in our own lives. I think we have this temptation to, to think that God wants something from us. That like there is the sense in which we have to exude a lot of energy in making amends to God and making God happy. And in some way, like, you know, some of us may think that God's angry at us, that God's not happy with some of the things that we've done and that God wants something from us. But I think there's a different way to look at it. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is painting this picture of someone who, who God doesn't want something from them. He's the one who's saying to the paralytic, go in peace, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. He didn't say go, but watch out. God's going to get angry at you again. Go in peace. Your faith has made you well. He says to the woman um, who was the sinner who interrupted the dinner with the Pharisees, go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 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 There's the sense in which Jesus is offering salvation for people up until the very, very end. And he wants people to be in a relationship with God that isn't, that isn't what, what, what can I give God to make God happy? It's not this temple model of, well, God wants something from me, and so I have to keep giving and giving and giving. So we have these different ways of looking at what happened on the cross. We call them atonement models in, in, in theology. We call them atonement models. And I just want to highlight three of them. Uh, there, there are just three schools of thought on this. Uh, we probably all stand one way or the other. But, and then I want to offer a fourth one that I think is going to be quite interesting. So this first one is called... Moral influence. And the moral influence model basically looks at Jesus' life. It looks at his life and the way he lived. And so what we do in the moral influence model is we say what happened on the cross is we're supposed to look at the cross and then look at the entire life that Jesus lived before the cross, and that's the example for us. He set the example for us for the kind of life to live. Kind of like that one. Kind of like that one. The second one is substitutionary. And that focuses on what happened on the cross. And what it says is it kind of is almost like Jesus blew up the temple cycle in some ways. Like, you know, there was a system of God, you know, we always need to give more, give more, give more, but we can never give enough. Well, Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus kind of gave the one sacrifice that that took care of it all. And then there's another model that kind of looks at his resurrection and what his resurrection did. It's a bit mythical. If you like Game of Thrones, you might like this one. It's called the ransom model. Here's how it works. From the beginning of time, from like the Garden of Eden. Satan has humanity ransomed to himself. And God, and he has a ransom set out for God. And God's like, I gotta pay the ransom. I gotta pay the ransom. So in Jesus, he comes up with a trick. Jesus dies and goes down into the dead. And Satan's like, ha ha ha, I got my ransom. But Satan didn't know what he got because all of a sudden then Jesus is like, resurrection. And then Satan loses. That's kind of a fun atonement model, is it not? The ransom model. I leave you with those. Wikipedia will tell you more. Um, <laughs> but I bring them all up because I think that we all do think a little bit of all of them. Because I think we do think that Jesus' life is really important. And I think his death is really important. And I also think his resurrection is really important. But I think there's an atonement model that can actually speak directly to the temple cycle as it happens in our own lives. And I want to share that with you right now. I call it the prepositional model. This will take you back to fifth grade English class. Here it is. If someone is willing to die for you, they're for you. You ever root for a certain team? Are you for the Bucks or the Rays or something? Are you for your son or your daughter? 
If someone is willing to die for you, they're for you. That's it. It's that simple. And I think it just kind of, it takes away the anxiety and the crushing guilt that comes with this temple model. Because so often we can feel like, I'm not doing enough. Does God really like me? I find myself, this is where I find myself looking so often. I find myself looking up at God wondering, have I done enough? Are you happy with me? Are you pleased with me? Am I the person that you want me to be? Instead of looking out into the world and looking at the people around me in the world around me and how I can be impactful in the world around me. This calls that into question. If someone is willing to die for you, they are for you. God is saying, no, don't, don't look up here. We're good. We're good. Trust me. We're good. Look out here. Look at what's going on around you. You never have to wonder where you stand with God. And for me, there was always this barrier. There was always this barrier that I had to get over. It was this barrier of kind of self-doubt. Self-doubt, self, um, self, I can't think of the right word for it, but self-doubt. And so what, what it was, is it was like this barrier here. And I heard this story once by Brennan Manning. And he's a writer. He's a writer who wrote this book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. And he tells this story. And it's a beautiful story that helped me kind of get over it. And I want to share it with you. He says, there was this woman who um, was having visions of Jesus. And the archbishop came to talk to her because we can't have people having visions of Jesus. Now can we? And so the archbishop comes to her and says, have you been having visions of Jesus? And she says, yes, I have. And he goes, well, the next time you have a vision of Jesus, I want you to ask him something. She says, okay. She says, I want you to ask him what sins I confessed the last time I was in confessional. She says, okay. Well, a couple of weeks later, he catches word that she has again been having visions of Jesus. And so he goes to her and he says, do you remember what I asked you? Do you remember, did you ask Jesus what I asked you to ask? And she says, yes, yes, I did. And then she takes the bishop's hand in hers and looks him dead in the eye and says, Jesus' exact words were, I don't remember. I don't remember. Christians should be the freest people. If you were doing Christianity and you feel like you have this guilt, this burden, this weight on your shoulder, I'm so sorry. Please know that it's meant to be the freest. We are supposed to be the freest people so that we can go out into the world. We are not meant to be caught in this looking up at God, wondering, have I done enough? We are meant to be living for the sake of others. That's the truth of the cross. And that's the truth of today. Will you pray with me? Dear God, thank you so much for preserving this story, for preserving the story of your son, Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Help us when, when, when our own feelings of our own inadequacy and our own sinfulness gets in the way and keeps us from trusting in you and keeps us checking on our relationship when we should be checking on our relationship with others. God, free us from that cycle. Free us from that cycle of always thinking we owe you more. Help us to be free people who want to go out into the communities around us for the sake of others. We pray all of this in the name of your Son. Amen.